Fortunately, he was willing to devote yet another apse in his cathedral mind to making his ideas about three mighty themes, neoliberalism, masculinity, and Christianity, intelligible to me. We'll discuss this totally insane profile <laughs> of Mayor Pete in Wired Magazine and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made in Cookware and I on FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. If for some reason you're already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, let's go first to the 2024 race. DeSantis in as of next Wednesday. Tim Scott, in as of Monday. Mike Pence, in sometime soon. Chris Christie, in also sometime soon. What do you make of it? You forgot Doug Burgum. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think Will Hurd is thinking about it too. I learned to meet the press. Um, listen, what do you make of it? I mean, uh, it's... Oh, the mayor of Miami. Not- mayor of Miami. In. Oh, Sometime soon. Here comes everybody. Um, and it is not what you... I mean, a lot of Republican voters do not want to see this. They want a clean, uh, you know, cut argument, you know, maybe of two or three people... Trump and a couple of alternatives. Now it's Trump and, you know, the whole clown car uh, pouring out. Um, And it's to be expected because there is a lot to gain in publicity from being on a presidential debate stage. And uh, whether you're seeking a new book deal, a cabinet spot, a veep slot, uh, a talk radio show, uh, or just... You know, because the party has nothing to do with you after you've achieved uh, a high office in a state like Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, you just throw throw your hat in the ring uh, and hope for the best. And um, you know, there are some candidates. I think you know my cards are on the table. Basically, I I think DeSantis is the Republican Party's best chance at growing the party again at providing a competent leadership uh, and a, a compelling general election candidate. Um, now, there are there are some figures in this race who I think their presence may be salutary. That includes Mike Pence. Uh, that includes even Chris Christie, um, because I think th- these two can provide interesting character witness about Donald Trump uh, that may be useful and necessary and expedient. Um, and, you know, I welcome Tim Scott into the race too, because I think he, he may also, you know, provide a good alternative if somehow, uh, it goes nuclear between Trump and DeSantis and, and both men are destroyed. Um, but yeah, the sheer number of candidates is getting out of hand. 
Um, it makes the first debates look silly. Um, it yeah, makes... what, what are they going to do? They, they'll, they'll either have to have some uh, criteria to keep, keep keep people out, but you got to worry about you know a, a couple serious people being too low in polling or whatever the metrics are, or you got to do the, the the double debate stage, you know, and, and maybe without Trump participating, which would be very weird. And and what happens at those when it when it's formulated like that? What happens is. Um, candidacies blow up for silly reasons. Like R Rick Perry just blew up because he totally biffed one answer. You know, he he had th a 13 second brain cramp and it ended his political aspirations forever, even though he had been a solid governor and, and was actually pretty charismatic of a figure. Um, you know, it just becomes this stupid feeding frenzy. Um so yeah, I, I don't think I don't think this is good for our politics, and I wish the parties were powerful enough to uh, limit intelligently limit the candidates who could run. Yeah, well, Charlie, that's that's very difficult to do, and I, I'm for the record, I've never been a let's let's keep the the field nice nice and clean and just have two guys, you know, so we can have this. DeSantis Trump showdown because you, you need to know how DeSantis is, is going to run and there are uh, surprises in any presidential race. The key thing, uh, so it's not getting in necessarily it's the problem. The key thing is is getting out in time if it's not happening for you and you're just going to um, be, be a spoiler and make it difficult for a the the chief non-Trump candidate, and I see Mike Pence. You know, if uh, he's got a shot in Iowa, I would say he is. He is um, has a relationship with evangelicals. He's actually really good in small settings. You know, despite the Im image he has, you know, a as a stiff, he can be really engaging in in person. And they're just going to try to run him like he's running for you know mayor of Iowa. And you know, may maybe it'll happen for him. You know, uh, per uh, not not uh, less likely than than not, but. Um, I think he would get out if, if he saw I'm at 3%, I'm taken out of the hide of DeSantis or someone else is going to make it harder uh, to beat Trump. But some of these folks, you know, they're in for the reasons that, that MBD was describing, and there's going to be no incentive to get out, especially if, if you're, you're eyeing a Trump uh, cabinet post down the line. It's actually a feature, not a bug, to make it harder for someone to take down Trump. And that was the criticism that I leveled last year in the piece I wrote, Don't Run. It is not up to me who runs, and I cannot determine whether or not a given candidate really believes that they have a shot. What I can say is that if your stated aim is to prevent Donald Trump from becoming the nominee... If that's your rationale, as it is for some candidates, most notably Chris Christie, then there are a lot of people who ought to stay out because they're going to help Trump. They're going to crowd the field. They're going to make it easier for him to stand out. So if there are people, as you say, whose calculation is that they by staying in will make it more likely that they will be chosen for a cabinet position by Donald Trump, then they should drop the pretense that they don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee. Now, I'm with you on DeSantis. I've said that on this show. I don't think it would be healthy for the party to stage a coronation of DeSantis at this point. 
or even for those anti-Trump elements within the party to make him their sole choice. We don't know how he performs. We don't know whether he translates out of Florida, whether he has the stamina or the charisma, whether he's able to thread the needle with Trump, what he looks like on a debate stage, where the primary electorate is even. There has to be some sort of competition, some sort of challenge, some sort of friction. But not everyone who is going to run for president this time around thinks that they are going to win. Or at least not everyone thinks that it is likely. And after a certain point, you really do have to take into account the effect that your running is going to have on aggregate. And I think we are approaching a point at which the answer to that question is obvious. It's going to help Trump. Not only are we creating a crowded field once again, we're creating a crowded field with ambassadors from the states that whoever emerges as the clear non-Trump will need to win. Sununu is from New Hampshire. And whether he has any money or not, will be able to afford to stay in the New Hampshire race right to the end because he lives there. The same is true of Tim Scott and Nikki Haley in South Carolina. There has to be some sort of collective action thinking, surely, here, unless nobody actually cares. Unless Trump is one option among many and not the problem that the vast majority of those who are throwing their hats into the ring say he is. Yeah, so for Christie, the, the challenge is going to be if he's in to make the case against Trump, make the case about Trump, and, and be careful about making the case against everyone else. But it's going to be hard for him to, uh, given his natural combativeness, to, uh, to, to do that. So Matty DeSantis is in as of Wednesday. He's going to have his announcement in Miami. I think it's just worth underlying, uh, underlining just, just how audacious this is, I mean, he's, he's running against the 600-pound gorilla who looked like maybe he'd slimmed down to like 500 pounds you know, as of January or so after the midterms. But is that full 800-pound strength is above 60% in some national polls where DeSantis is in the teens, who has already signaled, and not that there would be any doubt about this, that he'll say and do anything to destroy DeSantis, if he thinks he's in his way, which he he does, we've already heard the grooming allegations. We've already heard, you know, the the suggestion he might be gay, and and there'll be more gro- grotesqueries like that uh, to come. And another sign of just how ambitious and self-confident DeSantis is. We had this leaked phone call with donors the other day where he's making the case there there are three people, you know, who are serious candidates, and there are two of them who can be elected president of the United States. One, Joe Biden, and the other, me. What do you make of that case? Yeah, I mean, of course, he's going to say that, especially in this David and Goliath type fight. But I do think he may be onto something. I mean, we've seen... um, a survey from uh, public opinion strategies looking at uh, key swing states, so Pennsylvania and, and Arizona in a 2024 situation. And you do see DeSantis beating Biden and you see uh, Trump losing those states. So he certainly 
onto something. And I think, you know, as much as there's been a lot of uh, doomsaying about DeSantis' run, uh, especially based on those national polls you just mentioned, uh, some of this momentum has been, I think, recovered in the last couple of weeks. So you've seen endorsements coming out from state lawmakers in Iowa, New Hampshire, in Florida. They, you've, you've also seen it sort of push for for the type of popularity that Trump has. He's, he's mentioned his um, his best-selling book, and and actually, as a comparison with Obama's books before he became president and Hillary Clinton before she became a candidate in the 2016 cycle, uh, those are those are surpassing those kind of figures. I, I know that's not not the only thing you care about, but you know, there's signs that that people could um, could get behind DeSantis. His big challenge, of course, though, and you've, you've already mentioned it, is that Trump uh, is very effective at detecting people's Achilles heel and then just going nuclear on it in a way that's just very, very hard to recover from. So he's um, he's talked about DeSantis needing a, a personality transplant. And we, we know what he's talking about. We're, we know about this this charisma problem, his, his difficulty with um, ke- keeping up the energy with donors. This is all, you know, it's all there. It, 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 he's obviously working on it, but he's having to work pretty hard on it, um, which is which is concerning. And then what is what is the response to that? The response is that, and DeSantis said this himself in Iowa uh, recently, he said, you know, well, okay, but there's a, there's a culture of losing in the GOP. And he's talking about Trump. He's talking about um, the, the election and, and the continued um, lies about the election. But will that be enough? I'm, I'm really not sure. I, I sort of oscillate between this, like, sense of impending doom that, that Trump will be the candidate and, and I hold on to a little bit of hope, but... But I, I think DeSantis has a long way to go. So MBD, on that electability message, it's pretty much this private call that a New York Times report happened to be on is an exception. But in public, DeSantis has been all, it's been all indirection, right? He talks about this, as Maddie says, this culture of losing, which is, there's not, the, the culture, the center of the, the uh, culture, the locus of, of the culture is Trump, right? And he, and he, doesn't say it, hasn't said it. I believe he will say it. And and uh, people running to make the case against Trump, you know, because DeSantis is not going to make it. I think he he will end up making it. But I I worry about the electability message. You know, DeSantis, if this is going to be a going concern, he's he's doing uh, well among somewhat conservative voters and moderates, but he needs to to pry some very conservative voters away from Trump. And I just wonder how much that electability message is going to matter to them. Historically, it it hasn't. The the electability message has been kind of an establishment frontrunner type message, not not uh, an insurgent conservative trying to get to the right of of the guy who is the frontrunner, in this case, obviously Donald Trump. Right. And not only that, I think there's a structural problem in the argument for uh, DeSantis's... There's two problems with DeSantis's electability argument. One, Trump is probably electable <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in a general election. I mean, just uh, Biden is so profoundly weak and is also liable to become profoundly weaker at any minute. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's very thinkable that Joe Biden could have a fall and turn out like um, Senator Feinstein or could have a stroke and look like John Fetterman in the middle of the next election. Um, uh, Among many other potential liabilities for Biden. Um, 
including a, a recession that may make Donald Trump's 2019 economy look like a viable alternative. Um, secondly, uh, the polls already indicate that the Republican Party has a profound class divide that translates into a political divide where um, upwardly mobile suburban voters are overwhelmingly for DeSantis uh, and, you know, admire his competence or whatever. But there are huge sections of the country, um, much rural, some of them downwardly mobile white voters who are surrounded by other downwardly mobile white voters who are all for Trump. Like, and they like, just as some professional class people stupidly say, I don't know anyone who supported Trump. There are other people who live in an environment where they say, I don't know anyone who doesn't support Trump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the electability argument is going to be tough on them because they remember this argument being launched against Trump in 2016. And then it turned out not to be true. Um, you know, and it, it gives them this kind of, um, you know, as I've said on the podcast before, there's this kind of uh, magic connection between those voters and Trump because they feel like, you know, this is they're they're part of this epic story where this man somehow overcomes all the haters and doubters um, and the expectations and the experts. So yeah, I think I think DeSantis has to make a much more substantive case against Trump, um, and there's plenty. A room to do that. Yeah, abortion, to. obvious, obvious opening there. Abortion, but also just like basic competence. Um, you know, uh, there there may be stuff on the transgender issues where Trump uh, and his team don't actually want to go there. I mean, Donald Trump Jr.'s out there trying to warn the conservative movement not to get too anti-trans. Um, uh, you know, taking on corporate power. Um, you know, there's there's a whole host of of things. I mean, even just saying, you know, I, I mean, I think the strongest argument DeSantis can make is I'm the guy who gets things done. Like, mm -hmm. you promised there'd be a wall, but now we have a, uh, we have another border crisis. Like, you did not your 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 fix was temporary. Um, yeah, not good enough. So, ask a question to you first, Charlie Cook. Among these second tier or marginal candidates, which do you expect to surprise on the upside? Picking one of Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Tim Scott, Mayor Suarez of Miami, Doug Burgum of North Dakota, Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. Mike Pence. MBD, we have a Mike Pence on the board. You included Tim Scott in the list? I did, yeah. Uh, uh, he'll have a moment, but I, actually, I think the surprise one is going to be Christy. Um, really? I th yeah, I think I, I think Christy has... Um, uh, how, do I, how do I put it? Um, he has the freedom of being politically dead, right? Like he, he is, he's, mm -hmm. he's so far beyond his political expiration date that in effect, uh, he can say whatever he wants. And I think that kind of Bullworth style freedom on the campaign trail is going to suit him very well. And, and so I have appeal to, to people, not just reporters. Yeah, I, th I, th I, yeah, I think so. Maddie Kearns. Uh, I'm going to say Tim Scott. 
Yeah, so maybe, and I think um, maybe this is what MBD are getting at, Tim Scott. Maybe Tim Scott shouldn't shouldn't be on the list. That would be my choice, too. The uh, case against him is that maybe it wouldn't be so much of a surprise. I think conventional wisdom is now <clears throat> beginning to crystallize, and he, he may be the, you know, if you rank it, Trump, DeSantis at the, the top of the list, maybe Tim Scott is number three. Uh, so if we scratch Tim Scott from the list, I agree with Charlie and would say Mike Pence, who Rich, was mentioned earlier. Yeah. Do we have time for me to disagree with Michael for just two minutes? Go for um, it. Yeah, uh, one, I, minute. I, I, one minute. <laughs> one minute. <laughs> I think that DeSantis has to talk about Trump's lack of electability. I just think he has to mix it in with other things. But I think okay, it would yeah. be crazy to avoid it. In fact, mm-hmm. I don't think he can avoid it now because he's already said it out loud. He's talking about a culture of losing. You can't exclude the most recent presidential election from that. But Trump is a massive risk. I have said before, and I believe, that it is possible that Trump could win. Maybe Biden falls over. Maybe he's seen as too old. Maybe we have a recession or a real estate crisis or what you will. But of course he has to talk about this. Trump, when he won in 2016 against all the odds, got 46.1% of the vote. In 2020, he got 46.8% of the vote. He presided over a disastrous midterm in 2018 where DeSantis won despite the odds. And he presided over a disastrous midterm in 2022 as the de facto head of the party, where DeSantis won by 20 points. Sure, he can't just say, Trump, you're unelectable. But he has to hammer this home. It's a ridiculous risk to take. You don't base your major decisions in life or in politics on if everything breaks the right way, I suppose it's nominally possible. So I, I think it would be a massive mistake for him to downplay that. I, I don't disagree. And I think, I do think the the media is going to force the issue because as we saw in the CNN town hall, they're going to take up the first couple minutes of every debate saying like, hey, what do you think happened in 2020? Absolutely. And they should, they should. <laughs> so everyone's going to give their answer. So with that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Made in Cook, where we have made in frying pans here in the Lowry kitchen, and they are awesome. I was actually just watching one late last night. Made in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Made In's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution we've found all this to emphatically be true our pans are great to handle they cook evenly and very importantly they are easy to clean that pan last night my wife had scrambled eggs in the morning and i found it in the sink at 11 p.m i'm not criticizing here she had a lot going on yesterday but in a typical pan that happens and cleaning that sucker is well nigh impossible most pans it would still be soaking as we speak and i'd I'd make another go of it later on tonight but uh, the maiden pan was easy to scrub and scrape even uh, an egg after uh, some some egg residue was left in there for a while so made in 
gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation, which matters more than mine. And right now, Editor's listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Maiden. For full details, visit maidencookware.com slash editors. That's maidencookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. It is indeed great stuff. So speaking of great stuff, Maddie, we have bills in Florida and Texas pushing back and restricting the the practice of uh, giving the gender, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care uh, to minors, which is a euphemism for the, these life-changing uh, treatments Many, you know, we don't know exact numbers, but but a lot of uh, these folks go on tragically to regret. How do you uh, think of these bills? Yeah, well, the first thing I would note is that they're defensive in nature. I mean, I don't, I don't particularly like the idea of, of government getting involved in, um, in in medicine, but if the medical establishment is unable or unwilling to prevent mass malpractice that affects children. Um, then absolutely the state has a compelling interest to, to get involved. And that's what you're seeing here. And I would just, you know, these, these bills have been getting a lot of attention um, in the mainstream media. Liberals ha- are, you know, saying it's sort of horrifying and um, abusive and whatever else. But I would just like to contrast it with the bill that um, just passed the state house in Minnesota, um, which is designed to ensure that minors are allowed to receive these sex mutilating treatments um, in the absence of parental consent. So it's not only that this is happening, it's that there's a push to to ensure that this keeps happening and it keeps happening in the most extreme way possible. Um, what the, the Florida bill was part of a, a package of bills that was, was designed to sort of cur- curtail these types of excesses across um, education. So, you know, we've we, we know now about the, the pornographic materials going into schools, um, also um, other issues to do with sort of custody, uh, so the state can't just um, just uh, remove parental rights in, in these situations. You have The schools have to be transparent. We, we saw that with the parental rights and education bill as well. And the Texas law as well is, is sort of uh, specifically targeted at uh, what's going on in clinics. I will say, you know, Obviously, the, these these laws. I think there's about 19 of these laws now across the, the U.S. and in conservative states. Obviously, um, they're not all going to be imper- uh, going to be perfectly drafted, and there, there's going to be sort of um, issues in, in getting the, the details right. Um, uh, these are often complicated situations, and it's hard to it, it's hard even to to pick the right language in in drafting these bills because you know the the, the left has their quick easy euphemism gender affirming care but but actually there's a range of things going on here from puberty blockers to actual amputating healthy breast tissue and everything and it's all got to be in there um but i think it's absolutely right and encouraging that we are seeing an effort uh, to do something about it because conservatives must and, and should so charlie where does a conservatarian come down on this? Because the clinics, obviously, they're private operations. The you know, in most cases, you assume these are minors who are acting in in uh, with their parents' knowledge and and consent, and you know, the parents are ultimately in charge. So, what role does government have here? Well, the government has two roles. The first is to regulate medicine, as it's done. For hundreds of years, 
I don't hear many people arguing against that. In fact, a lot of the people who are complaining about this in absolute terms, Chris Hayes said that Ron DeSantis is now in charge of your child's health care, are vocally in favor of, say, childhood vaccine requirements, which are defensible. The second role that the state has is protecting children. I can't speak for everyone who is right of center or classical liberal or conservatarian or leans libertarian or what you will, but I have always drawn a distinction between minors and adults. For example, I'm in favor of decriminalizing pretty much every drug. I think that adults should, if they wish to, be able to buy heroin. I think the government has a strong role to play in preventing children from doing so. Even if the parents of those children want their child to consume heroin. The same goes for pornographic material, for example. I don't have a particular problem with pornography. I don't want to see too many legal restrictions on it for adults. Obviously, I wish to keep it as far away from children as possible, and I think it is absolutely reasonable for the state to say that adults cannot show pornographic material to children, including parents, and that venues that host pornography or adult sexual material cannot accommodate kids. That being so, the question is one of merit, not of principle. Is this correct? Medically, and I think that at this stage, at the very least, it is far better to err on the side of caution when you're dealing with irreversible and newfangled medical procedures where there is a great deal of pressure from the culture and where there are perverse incentives within a medical field that is supposed to have as its operating thesis, first, do no harm. If you had gone back 20 years and explained the contents of this bill to the average American, they would have said yes, obviously. In fact, you don't have to go back 20 years. That is still true now. It is telling that when the major news outlets report on this, they use euphemisms. They say gender-affirming care, which is, of course, question-begging, or they say that trans people will be denied health care. Why do they say that? Because when you tell people what is involved in these medical procedures, majorities of them, supermajorities in some cases, and especially in states such as Florida and Texas, are revolted by what they are hearing. Whenever the proponents of a given idea use misleading words so that they don't have to talk about what they really mean, you know something's up. Mm -hmm. So MBD, how do you think about this? And would you apply the hot button word or bonest to these initiatives in that there's this cultural tie that feels irresistable that, you know, in some instances is uh, government is, is in play, you know, uh, the uh, Biden, you know, administration is all, all in favor of this stuff, but, but basically is, is private actors pushing this and creating a kind of uh, a coercive environment 
around it, where if you're a dissenter, you're a terrible person. In some cases, even if you're a parent, you know, you're you're a, a terrible person, and and this this these cultural forces are going to work to grind you down. And then here you have Republican governors using government to yeah. to fight back. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have to go to you know the Carpathian Basin to find precedent for this, right? I, I mean. Uh, you know, the 1648 Book of General Laws and Liberties Concerning the Inhabitants of Massachusetts includes a statute called An, an Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits. <laughs> this kind of law is totally within the American tradition. You know, if a man or woman be a witch, <laughs> that is, <laughs> you know, defined. Right. Congratulations. Defined it, Top 10 highlight right there of editors all time. Good job, Michael. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not done. <laughs> you know, if a man or woman be a witch that is hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 13, 6. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 okay, so that's, that's funny to say it. But in truth, there's actually a great piece in Tablet uh, that kind of... Uh, rec journal of, of Jewish thought that's become one of the most essential uh, intellectual magazines in America right now. Um, called like it's called "We're All Pagans Now," and it takes up the trans issue, which is is basically like this is a kind of reintroduction of a repaganization in the um, imagination, right? Pagan cultures are because they lack the fixity of a creator monotheistic god uh pagan cultures are haunted or suffused with this idea of like transformation about mm. um you know uh not being but constantly becoming or um you know assertion of an identity and i really do believe that the law has a role in regulating public orthodoxy and i think it's an unavoidable role i think it's a you know you find you can't understand western civilization's laws even under modern liberalism without uh understanding that it that they come from this christian inheritance which mm -hmm. got rid of pagan understandings um yeah and I, I, asserted I, I, and asserted and asserted that we have we have noble goods that we can preserve for children even against the authority of their parents that is you know uh you know it in in pagan societies parents could sell their children into slavery in pagan societies parents could do could put their children to death um Mm -hmm. uh, for offending the father, etc. Christian societies ban this, and liberal societies inherit, inherit that, and it's totally legitimate. And and the, I bring up, you know, the 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 law against witchcraft to point out that like our laws have done this and will continue to do this uh, as long as we remain civilized. You got it. You got to write it. You got to write it, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether you're on the podcast or whether I've mentioned to you offline this book, the the weirdest people in the world. Um, uh, came came out several years ago by this. Uh, uh, I think it's anthropologist and psychologist Joseph Heinrich and and uh, Heinrich, and his insight was that there are all these psychological studies that are done in the West, uh, overwhelmingly 
administered to college students that have, have been meant to define what human nature is right, yeah. and, and, and and like college students in the West are a small minority of people worldwide, and of course have all sorts of different attitudes about everything because they've been acculturated into the West. And what he, the argument he makes, I think quite convincingly, is what what we accept as norms uh, all go back to the, the spread of Western Christianity. Uh, and and the, the family and sexual norms that it created, and you can just sort of draw lines, you know, around the, where the Carolingian Empire was at, a, at at its height. You know, on one side of the line, it's very Western in its attitudes. On the other side of the line, it's not. And even in Italy, where Western Christianity spread first in the north and not so much in the south, the south is different. You know, it has this uh, a clannish uh, society where there's a lack of social trust and there's more criminality and there's more cousin marriage, et cetera, et cetera. But, but Maddie, to, to bring it back to the, the trans debate we're engaged in, just on one last thing here, uh, Ben Shapiro highlighted this, this uh, fascinating Washington Post piece uh, about Megan Fox, who, you know, the actress, she's in the new swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated. Obviously, she's quite an attractive woman. In fact, she's almost as hot as Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, <laughs> but she has a, a body dysphoria, and she's, she's talked about this. She thinks things are desperately wrong with her body. She does not view them the way other people do. This is a, a deeply irrational um, belief, obviously, but it's it's something that affects her deeply. And there's she talked about this in the little Sports Illustrated interview, and the Washington Post had a piece talking about body dysphoria, and the treatment for body dysphoria is is basically, I'm simplifying, you try to talk people out of it, right? You try to understand what their feelings are, uh, what the, the source of, of those feelings um, is, and, you know, treat it from there. But you don't say, oh, yeah, Megan Fox, you know, uh, whatever it is, chop it off or amplify it or get, get you know, multiple cosmetic surgeries. But that's what we're doing with uh, gender dysphoria. Yeah, I think the issue is that they've basically the activists have attacked the consensus on reality. So when the transgender thing first got started in the 1950s, I mean, that's when you, you were first having the sort of um, endocrinologists and, and uh, surgeons were experimenting with this stuff in a major way in American medicine. They they understood what they were doing. They understood that you weren't literally changing a person's sex, that such a thing is impossible, um, that, that what you were actually doing was, was trying to manipulate this person's body so that it more closely resembled the sex that they wanted to be. Um, and that's obviously controversial because for, for the reason mentioned with with other with regards to other treatments is why would you why would you do that it's so much easier um to change your mind than to change your body uh, it's so much safer it's it's definitely going to uh on the whole lead to better long-term outcomes for the for the patient and um if, if we still had that consensus on reality then then of course that's that would be a mainstream position. That's be, that would be the position of the official medical establishment. But what the prob problem is, is that we've now undermined the reality of sex, and people don't um, they don't see that as being be a clear issue. They see it as this is a, a malleable thing that you determine by your inner sense of who you are, which kind of goes back to Michael's point about pagan. Um, worldviews uh, that the idea that you can determine your own reality is 
just flies in the face of our Judeo-Christian um, tradition. So Charlie Cook, X question to you. How confident are you rated zero to 10, zero not confident at all, 10 extremely confident that we'll look back at this trend of treating gender dysphoria in this very aggressive and radical way as an insane uh, fashion that we never should have embraced in the first place, zero to 10? I would say that I'm a seven or an eight, but even if I'm wrong, I think we will maintain in our society a preference for children that is different than for adults. We habitually treat children and adults differently. One of the reasons that you're asking this question is that people on the left have looked at these bills and some of them have said, well, hang on a minute, I thought you were in favor of parental rights. Well, the parental rights in education bill in Florida is actually poorly named in one sense, in that it really does the same thing in education as this does in medicine, which is to set a bunch of regulations by which the institutions have to abide. And the rule in both cases is inextricably linked to the age of those to whom it applies. We want age-appropriate treatment. And I think it is possible that if over time, Americans either become more accepting or just give up fighting this question for adults, they will wish to regulate how it is applied to kids. So, you know, I'm a seven or an eight in general. Uh, I think I'm higher when children are involved. MB, do we have a seven or eight or maybe even higher for minors on the board? Um, I'm probably at about... I mean, I'm in a nine in the fullness of time, but, um, but I think the fullness of time could be a long time. I'm, I'm haunted by um, uh, a speech that uh, this English, I don't know, reactionary feminist Mary Harrington gave in which she said that, um, you know, artificial birth control was the first uh, trans technology because mm. it was... It was uh, invented to not to cure a malady, but to help a human conform to what we think, you know, politically they should, they should, how, how a body should operate. Um, that like the political ideal sort of took over, uh, and precedence above human nature itself. And that's haunted me because I think that's going to be a continuing temptation in hundreds of other ways. I mean, you know, science fiction is littered with ideas of like, maybe there'll be this egalitarian future where we, um, disfigure the beautiful and make the intelligent dumber on purpose, uh, in order to achieve the political ideal of, of equality. Um, so I think these surgeries will be rejected as totally crude. I think the idea of politically, of trying to experiment on human humans to make us conform to our own ideals is is with us for a long time to come. All right, Maddie, so we have a seven and eight and a nine with some very dark thoughts mixed in. Where are you? <laughs> um, I'm probably an eight with, with also some dark thoughts mixed in. So I think Michael's absolutely right in that the we're, we're winning the fight 
over the harms um but we're losing if if not have already lost the the fight about the the broader truth claims and the fact that it matters so a lot of people will be willing to say transgenderism is harmful um at least in some cases but fewer people will be willing to say transgenderism is harmful because it is false because it's not real um because you can't choose your sex because this actually matters con conforming to objective re reality both both in a scientific and a moral sense is is important and we've, we we know this because if you look at um like other social issues even just abortion it, we've settled in this weird sort of contradictory compromise where where people are simultaneously registering as personally pro-life but but politically pro-choice um they, they don't like abortion they, they like to see it regulated but you know they they're they're willing to accept it and i think we're probably going to see a, a similar thing with with trans is the more extreme manifestations of it especially as it relates to children people will reject but um they, they will look for these very unsatisfactory compromises as we're seeing uh, sports governing bodies try to do with saying, OK, well, maybe if we impair the male body this amount, then that's kind of enough. Like, that's fair enough. And it's like, no, the, the bigger problem is that you just have a man in the women's category. And that's very unfair by definition. And it's also sexist because you're saying that a mediocre male or an impaired male is equivalent to an excellent female. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just I see that persisting because I have no reason to think that we're we're moving away from moral relativism. So on the narrow question of, of whether we'll look back on this as insane when it comes to the treatment of minors, I, I'm also way up there. I'm a nine. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode. I on FTC as Americans deal with rising prices, record inflation and fears of a looming recession. President Biden's Federal Trade Commission, under the direction of Chair Lena Khan, is pursuing anti-consumer, anti-competitive measures against American industries, killing innovation and threatening America's dynamic 21st century economy. And the worst part, American taxpayers are footing the bill for bureaucrats at the FTC to threaten to break up businesses and stop mergers and acquisitions. That's why the Competitive Enterprise Institute launched their Eye on FTC campaign exposing abuses of power at the FTC, calling on Congress to reassert oversight over this rogue agency and protecting consumers from government overreach. CEI is defending free markets and American capitalism, which are the greatest forces for peace and prosperity the world has ever known. To learn more, visit IonFTC.com. That's E-Y-E on FTC.com and consider helping CEI stop abuses of power at the FTC. So Charlie, all of us, or at least I've written overly favorable and optimistic things uh, about various uh, political figures and potential presidential candidates and sometimes you reach for you know um, metaphor is a little over the top or you try to be a little poet poetic and it kind of makes you cringe and retrospect but this wired profile of Pete Buttigieg is just so off the charts and it reads like a parody it makes Mayor Pete who's a, a glib guy uh, given that 
uh, well well spoken, has the resume to be a, a fantastic uh, transportation lobbyist sometime in his future. Sound like you know he's the combination of George Orwell and Charles de Gaulle there at the Department of Transportation. Yes, I should note in honor of Virginia Heffernan's wonderful glowing profile of Pete Buttigieg. I'm actually recording today's show from an apps inside. <laughs> I thought the echo, I thought there was a strange echo. Yeah, there are episode. many apses inside the cathedral that is Pete Buttigieg's mind, and I am occupying just one of them at the moment, which is a beautiful thing to behold. From where I sit, I can see the entire Library of Alexandria before the fire. <laughs> I don't understand this instinct. I don't understand it in general. I don't understand how one could write like that about even an impressive politician, but Pete Buttigieg? I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's slightly above average. But it read like a parody. It read like the ramblings of somebody who was in love with a mirage. She has, Virginia Heffern, and it seems to me, a stupid person's conception of a smart person. She throws in, in her introduction, the idea that perhaps in his spare time he completes Rubik's Cubes. And then she prints one of the most banal rambling interviews I've read in a long time. I suspect this happened because deep down, Pete Buttigieg shares the conception of himself that Virginia Heffernan offered up in this piece. And so the two of them together were unstoppable. I don't know how this got past an editor. I can only assume that it wasn't edited. Now, I looked at Virginia Heffernan's website yesterday, and she has a quote on there from her editor at Wired, who says that she is a wizard. She has another quote suggesting that she is the finest prose stylist in the English language, which she heard somebody say or read them right and then put on her own website without <laughs> embarrassment. So there's a vortex here. There is a vortex of arrogance and self-regard and delusion that led to this unique piece that I hope will be taught going forward in and out of journalism schools as what not to do when covering public officials. So, Maddie, the, the, there's some downside to Democrats getting these sort of profiles, right? They'll believe their their PR and they'll wrong foot themselves. Cl classic instance, you know, Stacey Abrams said if you believed every profile that was written about Stacey Abrams, you would have thought she was an electoral juggernaut in Georgia. And there's potential, you know, her first race was was pretty impressive. She lost it, despite what she uh, said said afterwards. But if she had positioned herself differently, she might have had a shot, you know, winning the governorship of Georgia. But she couldn't do it as a glossy magazine hero of the, the you know, New York fashion elite or, or whatever. And uh, but but there's a big 
upside here too, because you know, Wired's not a political publication. It's not Mother Jones or the Nation writing a, a glowing profile of Mayor Pete. It's supposed to be a, a mainstream uh, publication. So you get these Democratic politicians treated in what are supposed to be mainstream politicians as if they're conquering heroes. And that's a, uh, a, a massive PR benefit that I'm, I'm sure a lot of Republican politicians would, would kill to get. Yeah, I mean, I think on a superficial level, if you if you see uh, the, the front cover on on a magazine stand or something, you think, oh, that guy looks impressive or whatever. But if you actually start reading it, I mean, most people don't think like the liberal intellectual elites. They they aren't interested in in sort of waxing lyrical about the broken promises of neoliberalism or paleoliberalism or you know all, all this. It's just pretentious stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not. The trains run on time, which is which is Pete Buttigieg's job, and what most people will think of when they they think of what he does. And and I just couldn't get past the total incuriosity um, in in asking him about any of the controversies that have have plagued his his time as transportation secretary. Now I understand you, if he they could have given him uh, that she could have given him a, a softball question, she could have kind of. Uh, done it gently or, or, or sort of included a, a favourable explanation in the question <clears throat> when asking him about supply chain problems or, you know, on mass flight delays and cancellations or, or the, the train derailment in East Palestine or just, you know, any of these things, which, which in, in fairness and, and arguably aren't entirely his fault. But those are the types of things that I think people want to know about. They, they want to know about what he has to say about that. And the fact that she didn't even ask it is, um, I don't think it is helpful. I think it, it paints a picture of somebody who's completely out of touch, uh, just pursuing a, a strange sort of vanity project. And it's on both ends, both 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 the person doing the profile and the person being profiled. Um, I think it reflects very, very poorly on them. So MBD, yeah, the, the favorable profile, if you wanted to do such a thing, that you could write about Mayor Pete is, you know what? They're, Republicans are blaming him for all sorts of things, and it's really mean, and it's it's not really his fault, and he he's 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 doing a good job rather than uh, he, he's this towering genius. It's this is so bizarre. Um, I actually confess, I was one of the people who was insisting this must be a kind of send up of of Mayor Pete in some way because it was so off topic and you know made him look like he doesn't care about the job because they're talking about you know racial disparities and the environment and the environment as a clear and present danger to the young um not last when i was outside um it 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 was so bizarre but there is a kind of um i almost want to attack this piece from the left because there is this kind of um, I don't know, this NPR cult of Mayor Pete, like, and the idea that just, like, um, a, a wayfish, uh, clever white person can just save the world, um, you know, like, if you've, if you've expressed interest in, like, Peter Nausgaard's fiction and... Uh, you say a couple of magic words about diversity, like somehow you, you're the savior from on, on high, um, that I find utterly repulsive, right? <laughs> and like, 
Um, I'm sure many people on the left find it repulsive too, given that like the left's entire project for the past, I don't know, four decades has been actually denigrating white liberals as like, um, people afflicted with a savior complex when in fact, you know, the enslaved were liberating themselves or whatever. Um, this is just, I mean, uh, there's, um, and in fact, this goes beyond on the white savior complex things. There's a, there's a, a strong, like kind of North Korean, um, flavor to this. Like, you know, you get all these rumors that North Koreans believe that the, the Kim family doesn't, uh, use the bathroom, right? Like they're, they're these like upper higher class beings that don't ha have human waste, uh, touch their bodies. Like that's where I thought this was going before the end of it. Um, so, you know, I, I um, uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think this, this, this weird cult of the smart and the clever college student is something that like afflicts the democratic party and limits their appeal mm -hmm. in a profound way and will continue to do so for the future. So I'm all for encouraging it. So Charlie cook triple barrel X question to you. Yes or no on each of these mayor Pete will one day be president of the United States or will be vice president of the United States or will get a more prestigious cabinet position. If there is a Biden second term. I don't think any of those things is going to happen. We got a triple no. MBD. I agree with Charlie. Maddie Kearns. Um, I'm such a conformist. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the answer is no, no, no. With that, quick plug for Enterplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall. Your way. If you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, your way to dive deeper into the NR community. And very, very, very importantly, a, a really consequential way to support our valuable journalism. We need people to pay at least something. It's not that expensive. At least something for what they read at NR. So if you're not a member, please consider signing up today, tomorrow, the day after. I'll give you the whole weekend to sign up for NR Plus and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member. Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you are getting away. Yeah, getting, getting away. Uh, so a couple years ago... Uh, my wife and I figured out that like the best present we could give each other was just um, you know, a couple days away, um, you know, and uh, so it's my turn coming up, and I'm taking the Julian Jackson uh, biography of De Gaulle, a couple notebooks, and gonna try to turn off my phone for the weekend, and I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> awesome, good for you, Maddie Kearns. You visited the Tenement Museum in New York City. Yeah, it's a, it's a really neat thing. It's down in the uh, Lower East Side and they have, um, I think, like something like 12 apartments um, which they've tried to preserve using uh, people's family histories of, of who lived there and when they lived there. Um, so we went to see an apartment from the 1930s that was um, lived in by Italian immigrants and it was just really, you know, really interesting just to hear their family story and... Uh, 
uh, one lady in our group uh, made the comment, gosh, we're all so spoiled <laughs> because the, mm-hmm. the sort of living conditions and uh, the things they were they were having to go without were just so stark in, in compared to our modern luxurious living. But um, highly recommend it as a thing to do for people who visit New York. Charlie, you rented a pickup truck. I did, not on purpose. I just asked for a mid-sized SUV, but they didn't have one. So he asked if I wanted to take a pickup truck, which I did. And on the way back from where I had been, I stopped at a gas station and filled up the pickup truck. And suddenly I seemed to be much more interesting, much cooler in the eyes of (laughs) other men at the gas station. No one ever comes up to me with my Ford Explorer and says, hey, sup? Or just starts chatting with me. But in the pickup, in the pickup, I obviously looked different, had a different affect. And I was one of the cool guys who hang out at the the gas station. So perhaps I was at long last, Rich, fulfilling my potential and becoming rest stop Charlie. <laughs> well, I, I underestimated you because I called you yesterday. And I heard, I heard this whirring sound. I was like, Charlie, is that, is that the engine of a golf cart in the background? You're like, no, I'm in a, in a truck. So good for right. you. So I'm going to submit for our listeners' consideration that Sabotage, the single from the fourth Beastie Boys studio album, Ill Communication, is easily, easily among the top 10 songs of the 1990s and almost as good as the best Beatles hits. Discuss among yourselves. With that, MBD, it's time for our editor's picks. What's your pick? Uh, my pick is a piece by uh, Wilfred Riley, who's threatening to take all my picks in the future. Um, just because he hits a Don't tell me it's day. the glaring problem with Biden's white supremacy warning. It is the glaring uh. problem with Biden's white supremacy warning. <laughs> uh, every week he hits it out of the park, and this is no uh, exception um, but he puts the numbers and context into what the threat of white supremacy in the United States looks like, and it's a nothing burger compared to just about everything else, even other forms of crime, or and certainly nothing like the number of people dying of opiate and fentanyl deaths. Um, there's a lot more that we need to be focused on rather than this. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Charlie's uh wonderful piece of satire i love pete Buttigieg, and um it's actually a very difficult thing to do to to make somebody actually laugh out loud with a piece of writing but um charlie managed that multiple times especially the uh speaking in latin and uh, the, the the interruption it was it was it was great well done charlie charlie what's your pick Thank you. My pick, and I know I've made a ugly habit recently of picking pieces that are harrowing and tough to read, but I've got another one here. It's by John McCormack. It's called The Kermit Gosnell of Colorado, and it's about this terrible, terrible abortionist and his well, penchant for an enthusiasm for abortion. And it should be Read. It should be read even if you aren't opposed to abortion, as I am. John McCormack did a, a great job with it, and if it was as difficult as I thought it was to read, I can't imagine what it was like to write. 
So my pick is our editorial defending the work requirements that Republicans want to get on various uh, government benefit programs and the contention over the extension of the debt limit called, uh, very simply, headline, Work Requirements Just Make Sense. This is a 70-30-80-20 issue, and as the editorial sets out, deserves to be. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcasting rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Made in Cookware and I on FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.